thank you for coming today. If you're new here, I uh, hope you feel really welcome uh, in this space and amongst us. Um, and if you are new, you probably don't know this, but we are in the second half of a sermon series in the book of Nehemiah. Um, oh, uh, over the last few years, um, as the Hallows Church, we've gone through a lot of transition and change, uh, which means we, we kind of find ourselves in a rebuilding phase in the life of our church. And in this process of rebuilding, we found ourselves drawn to the book of Nehemiah because it's got so much in there to teach us about what it means to faithfully partner with God as he builds his church. If you missed the first uh, sermon in week one, uh, then the sermon notes are up on the website, helloschurch.org. Um, I would recommend reading those notes if you want to get the, the most out of the, the remainder of the series. So with that said, I'm going to give you a quick recap, and I am going to keep it quick because I know that we're eight weeks in now, and a lot of you have heard this recap many, many times, so I'll try and keep it as brief as I can. Um, so we're in the year 445 BC. Um, we're introduced to this guy, Nehemiah. Uh, he's from the tribe of Judah, um, but he's living in Persia um, with the rest of the people of Judah who'd been taken away from Jerusalem when Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 586 BC. So he's living in um, a city called Susa. It's a prominent Persian city, and he's working as the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, who was the most powerful man in the world at that time. And then we learn in chapter 1 that Nehemiah's brother, made the 900-mile journey from Jerusalem to Susa, and he tells Nehemiah some sad news. He says, Jerusalem's walls, they lie in ruin. And Nehemiah hears this news, and then he weeps over the city. And he spends four months in prayer about the situation, after which he then goes to the king, and he asks if he could go back to Jerusalem to rebuild it. And then we read in chapter 2 that because God and his gracious hand was upon Nehemiah, King Artaxerxes treated Nehemiah with incredible kindness. And he sends him back to Jerusalem with all the, all the things that he would need to get this rebuild project done. So Nehemiah makes the long journey, the 900 miles. He goes back to Jerusalem. He tells the people that are living there, look, God is with us. God's doing this, this thing um, amongst us. Let's rebuild the city and the people gather around this vision, around this, um, around this call to, to rebuild the city. And we see in chapter 6 that after just 52 days, they finally finish the project. The walls are rebuilt. The city's been safely fortified. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a day of great joy and great celebration. And then last week, we looked at chapter 7. And chapter 7 it's kind of like the what next moment for the people. So they've, they've rebuilt Jerusalem. Now the job is to basically cultivate a community within Jerusalem's walls. A community that would be about growth, about worship, and about belonging. And then chapter 8, where we are today, comes directly off the back of chapter 7. Both chronologically and thematically. And it highlights the, the, the importance of understanding God's word in a faith community. So before we dive into chapter 8, I'd love to pray for us. God, I thank you so much for Nehemiah chapter 8. Thanks for all that we're going to learn here in it. And uh, Lord, it's just so awesome that you're a God who can be un understood. Uh, that's a truth that, that just really stood out to me just now as we were worshiping that um, in, a, in a culture that um, so often says that we can't understand anything 
um, of God or anything, um, you know, kind of spiritual. Thank you that you are a God who can be understood, and thank you that you've made yourself known through your words. And I thank you so much, God, for the life and joy that comes through a right understanding of your word and about you. So I pray, Lord God, that we would, would have much joy as we read and go through this chapter together. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapter eight, it kind of starts like a new section in the, uh, in the book. Um, chapters one through seven has been like a, a, a memoir from Nehemiah. So it reads like his, almost like his journal. But then from chapter uh, eight, verse one, through to chapter 12, verse 27, it, it reads like more like a historical account. And it's written in the third person, um, potentially not by Nehemiah. Um, but then we go back after that for the rest of the, the book. So the, the remainder of chapter seven, yeah, chapter 12, sorry, and, the, and chapter 13, it kind of goes back to that memoir style um, that we've seen in the, in the book so far. And chapters eight and nine, it's, it's all about the people rediscovering what it meant to be in a relationship with God after enduring 150 years in exile. And this process of rediscovery, it starts by reading and and explaining, or the reading and explanation of God's word. And we're going to see God's word do three things in chapter 8. So firstly, we're going to see that God's word satisfies people's hunger. Secondly, we're going to see God's word brings profound comfort. And then we're going to see that God's word leads to joyful celebration. Okay. Firstly then, God's word satisfies people's hunger. So in the opening verses of chapter 8, it's revealed that the people had a a deep hunger for the word of God. We read in verse 1 that unprompted, the people take the initiative and they gather everyone together in the square And then they ask Ezra, who is both a scribe and a priest, to read to them from the law of Moses, which is the first five books of our Bibles. And then in response to their hunger, Ezra, he reads to all of the men, all of the women, and all of those that could understand, which I think is supposed to mean children. So the men were there, the women were there, and the children that could understand were there. And he reads for five to six hours straight without any break. Can you imagine that if we got together on a Sunday and read the Bible for five to six hours straight? And here's the crazy part. It says that they listened intently. So they read it for five to six hours, and the people did not switch off, not even for a moment. Incredible. In verse 6, we see that before the word was read, they worshipped. They They bowed their faces low to the ground. Showing reverence for God and reverence for God's word. It's worth asking at this point, why were the people so hungry to learn? Well, we know that the people were out of the habit of regularly worshipping together due to the exile. So they'd lived for six, maybe seven generations in captivity. So by the time they went home to Jerusalem, the common person was more or less biblically illiterate. Despite this, the good news was that the precious scrolls containing the first books of our Bible had somehow survived the exile. I want you to to imagine that you were 
one of the people, one of the men, one of the women, one of the children here in Judah. You move back to Jerusalem. You, fi- you've, you finally got this space to, be- to begin your new life as a community of faith. You know, you know that there's a guy called Ezra, this, this priest, this scribe, that has access to the writings that you know God himself had given to your ancestors all those centuries ago. What would you do next? Surely you would want to know what those writings said. This is why they waste no time. They gather everyone together. They say, Ezra, can you, can you read to us from these precious scrolls? And then they say, they say this, the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. So the people were biblically illiterate. They didn't know the content of the Holy Scriptures, but they were hungry for it because they knew that it was the very word of God, that it had come from his mouth directly to their ancestors. Not only were the people biblically illiterate, they were also vulnerable and needy. The exile had been hard on them, both materially, relationally, culturally, and spiritually. As they started out on this journey of rebuilding, on this journey of rebuilding their community of faith, they had next to nothing. Their poverty and lack meant they hungered for God's word because they recognized that the scriptures were a precious resource that belonged to them at a time when they had very little else. As we're going to see later in the chapter, God delights to satisfy people's hunger for him and his words. In fact, God can only do a work through his word in the lives of men and women who have a deep hunger for it. Men and women who know the scriptures are nothing less than the divinely inspired words of God. Men and women who realize just how needy, vulnerable, and impoverished they are without the words of God. Friends, how hungry are we for the word of God? Do we recognize that we hold in our hands a precious gift from God? Do we realize just how impoverished we are without it? Do we long for the power, the truth, and the beauty in every word on every page? If we sense a lack of hunger in ourselves, here's four ideas for ways to cultivate such hunger. Firstly, do you really believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God? If you don't, then you have to start here. You have to start by exploring further why you're finding it hard, why you're finding it difficult to believe that the Bible is God's inspired truth. Because here's the thing, you'll never hunger for it. You'll never hunger for the Bible until you genuinely believe that it's not just truth, but it's God's truth. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is the great teacher according to John 14, 26. So we can ask the Holy Spirit to reveal God's truth to us in a way that makes us hunger for more. Thirdly, 
We probably all know someone in our lives that loves the Word of God. So spend time around that person. Read the Bible with that person. Because it's going to rub off on you. Lastly, having a hunger for the Word of God is, is not a natural thing. It's supernatural. It's a miracle. By our nature, we, 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 are, we are opposed to God. By our nature, we turn away from God. So it's actually a miracle. If anybody wants to read God's word, that's, that is a work of, of a miraculous God. And that's something that we can pray to God for. We can pray to God regularly to fill us with a fresh hunger, to feast on his nourishing word. So secondly then, we're going to look at how God's word brings profound comfort here in, in this chapter. So in verses 7 to 11, it builds on what, it, on what we've already read in verses 1 to 6. As Ezra reads the word, we see in verse 8 that a team of Levites, who as we looked at last week, the Levites were there to assist the priests, the Levites were translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. So the leaders of the people, they're working as a team. Ezra was reading out the word, and then the Levites were explaining the word. And then we read in verse 10, that as the people heard the law of Moses, the first five books of our Bibles, the people began to weep. Why were they, why were they weeping? Well, I want you to imagine that someone you love someone that you've known for a long time, one day turns around to you and says, you've been pronouncing my name wrong all these years, and every time you say my name wrong, it, kinda like, it just kind of hurts a little bit. I don't know about you, but if that was me, I, I'd, be, I'd be mortified, I'd be gutted, and I'd apologize, I'd, I had no idea all this time, I'm so sorry I was, I was saying it wrong. And then I'd resolve to try and say it right, you know, correctly going forward. This is a little tiny example of something, obviously in a much weightier sense, that's happening here with God's people. Remember, before Ezra read the law of Moses and the Levites explained it to the people, they were unfamiliar with the word of God. So in this moment, the people are learning about God. They're learning about what pleased him, about what displeased him. And to their, to their horror, they realize that they've been li living their whole lives unaware of how to please God. So they're, they're weeping because as God's word is read and explained, it was highlighting all the ways that they had failed to love God and live for God. You see, without the word of God, it's possible to convince yourself, to convince ourselves that we're good people. We can look around and say to ourselves, I might not be the best person out there, but I'm definitely, definitely not the worst person out there either. We can be like sheep. You don't see this much around here, but if you go back to the UK, there's sheep everywhere. And they're, they're white if you don't know. So sheep look pretty white compared to their surroundings. 
Around, you know, compared to their backdrop, they look pretty good. But then what about when it snows? What about the sheep against that beautiful, pure white snow? Suddenly, they look a little bit grimy, even dirty against that new backdrop. You see, against the backdrop of the world, we can convince ourselves that we're good people. But then we read God's words, we understand just how blemished we really are. Because God's word brings us into contact with Jesus, into, into contact with his perfection. And his perfection reveals the depths of our imperfections. God's word gives us a dose of reality. We might be good in comparison to some people, but compared to Christ, we see how desperately flawed and desperately compromised we truly are. The people wept over their sins. They wept over the sins of their ancestors. They wept because upon hearing God's words, like sheep in fresh snow, they realized just how sinful they really were. Weeping was an appropriate response to their sin in light of the holiness of God. But as we're going to see, their weeping also revealed that they only understood half of the story. Half of the story about themselves. Half of the story about God. You see, in verses 9 to 11, we read that Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites, they comfort the people three times over. In verse 9, they say, do not mourn or weep. In verse 10, they say, don't grieve. In verse 11, they say, be still. Three times they remind the people that this is a holy day. We read in verse, in, in verse 2 that the date was the first day of the seventh month, which is Rosh Hashanah, Jewish New Year, also known as the Day of Trumpets, a day of celebration, which marked the beginning of the high holy days leading up to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So this was a time for God's people to celebrate, not a time for them to weep. As well as the reminder about the nature of the day, the leaders also addressed the people's weeping by helping them to further understand the character of God from the law of Moses, the first five books of our Bibles. For example, Ezra and the Levites would have read and explained these verses from Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7. This is where God, he, he comes past Moses and he, he literally speaks to Moses. And, and the, <laughs> these are the words that God chooses about himself. I just want you to sit with this for a second because this is massive. These are the words that God chooses about himself to give to Moses. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and truth. 
maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Can you see? This is an intimate moment. God meets with Moses. God is speaking about himself. He doesn't define himself as a God who can't tolerate sin. He doesn't define himself as a God who judges. He doesn't define himself as a God who punishes. He doesn't define himself as a God whose fierce wrath burns against injustice. And he could have said all all those things about himself. All those things are true. And those truths are precisely why the people wept. But that's not how God chooses to speak about himself here in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Instead, God speaks of his mercy. He speaks of his love. He speaks of his patience, of his forgiveness, his compassion, his grace. These are the characteristics that God chooses to highlight about himself. As the people heard these truths about God's character and about how he deals with people, how he deals with sinners, how he deals with those that weep over their own brokenness and the brokenness of this world, the people were understanding for the very first time, the very first time, these things about God. Can you imagine hearing those words for the very first time about God? Can you think about the profound comfort that would have come in that moment? Profound comfort like nothing they had ever, ever experienced before. If this wasn't enough, on top of this, we read in Nehemiah 8, verse 10, that the leaders give the people another reason not to weep. It says this, Do not grieve, because the, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now the Hebrew word, ma'oz, which appears 36 times in our Bibles, and is translated here as strength in English, is most commonly translated as either refuge or stronghold. You see, because our Bibles have been translated out of the original languages that they were written, in this case, Hebrew, sometimes the most accurate meaning of the original words can be somewhat lost. Have you ever tried to communicate with someone in a foreign country using Google Translate? If you've tried to do that, you'll know that a sentence that makes perfect sense in the original language can sometimes sound really strange in the language into which it's being translated, because it, it loses the nuance. It, it, lo- it kind of like loses the flow. The kind of the turn of phrase is, is just lost completely. And you see, the reason I'm saying this is because the way that Nehemiah 8 verse 10 reads in the way that we've read it today in the CSB and in our English Bibles, it says, do not grieve because the joy of the Lord is your strength, which makes it sound like it's talking about our joy in the Lord, and our joy in the Lord being our strength. But if you translate ma'oz into stronghold, like it's usually translated elsewhere in the Bible, or refuge, 
Nehemiah 8.10 would read, Do not grieve. The joy of the Lord is your refuge or stronghold. Which sounds a lot more like Nehemiah 8 verse 10 is talking about God's joy in us. Anyone know the Bible project? <laughs> One person. Uh, the founder of the Bible project is a guy called Tim Mackey, and he's got a, a series on Nehemiah's four and a half hours long. He actually did it in Seattle, um, about six years old. Uh, if you want a full-blown deep dive into Nehemiah, I would hugely recommend um, that lecture series. And in that lecture series, he spends quite a lot of time on, on this verse, Nehemiah 8, verse 10. And he, he would say that he thinks, if you hold it up with all of the other ways in which that word, ma'oz, is translated elsewhere in the Old Testament and in the Bible, he thinks that the best way to read this verse is, do not grieve, for God takes joy in you, and that is your stronghold. If that is the correct way to read Nehemiah 8 verse 10, then it would strike a chord with other Bible verses that describe people like you and me as the source of God's joy. For example, Zephaniah 3.17 says this, The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight over you with singing. Moreover, Luke 15 verse 7 tells, it, tells us that there is rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents. And then Psalm 149 verse 4 says, the Lord takes delight in his people. Here's the thing. These truths about God the very truths that comforted the people when they were weeping, are true for you and me. Have you ever stopped to consider that it is at the heart of God's character to show you love, grace, compassion, and mercy? Have you ever stopped to ponder that, that God derives great joy in you? that he delights over you with singing, that he wants to quiet you with his love. You see, when we start thinking about God and about ourselves in, the, in these kind of terms, then it makes sense of why God would do some of the stuff that he does. Namely, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to, con to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. John 3, 16 and 17. You see, when we weep for our sins, God comforts us that because of his gracious, kind, and merciful character, and because of his deep joy in us, he made a way 
through Jesus' death and resurrection for us to be forgiven of our sins and look forward to eternal life with him where we will rejoice in him and he will rejoice over us. Friends, this, this is the heart of the gospel. When we grasp the gospel, the good news about Jesus, which is at the heart of our Bibles, Jesus says every single page of the Bible points to him, which means every single page of the Bible points to the gospel. The gospel is the good news about Jesus. When we get it, when we get that every single page points us to him, then we get that this is the answer. This is the answer to our weeping. It's the answer to our sorrow over the brokenness and the sinfulness of this world. And when we realize that, we realize that the gospel is able to profoundly comfort us in, in our in, in our worst moments, in the moments where we're, where we're so frustrated with ourselves, so disappointed in ourselves, so just we, just, we just can't believe we've done it again. It, it's, we go back to the gospel. We go back to, to who God is. We go back to what he's done in Christ. We go back to the fact that he takes joy in us. He, lit, he delights over us. We go back to all this, and we're profoundly comforted by it. And this leads us to our final point, which is God's word causes joyful celebration. So in verse 12, we read, then all the people began to eat and drink and send portions and have a great celebration because they had understood the words that were explained to them. So the partial understanding led to weeping the full understanding leads to a restoration of joy. The people ate and drank. They made sure that the vulnerable were also provided for so that they could celebrate as well. Basically, the, the headline of, of, of chapter 8 is, don't cry, go and have a party instead. And that's exactly what they did. They went and had a big party. You see, God's word, when it's properly understood... It leads to an overflow of joy. Let me just say that again. God's word, when properly understood, leads to an overflow of joy. My wife, Debs, who did the reading, um, we love hosting huge dinner parties. It's one of our favorite things to do every once in a while. So it really makes me smile that we get to read here of an, of an epic party that goes down in Jerusalem. An epic party that comes off the back of the people grasping God's goodness and God's grace in all its fullness. As we make our way through Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10, we are going to see that confession and a more somber tone lies ahead. But Nehemiah 8 describes a time of partying and celebration in the love of God to experience the true joy that comes when a person understands, that, 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 that understands God and understands everything about him, the party that comes when they experience that true joy in them. The tone of Nehemiah 8 is one of partying and celebration. 
Now, of course, there's, there's times for us where it's appropriate to be solemn, where it's appropriate to mourn, where it's appropriate to weep. But with that said, when we gather together as a church, the vast majority of the time, the appropriate response to God should be one of joyful celebration. If we've truly tasted the goodness of the gospel, if we can truly say of ourselves, God delights in me, he gave his one and only son for me, there was great rejoicing in heaven when I was saved, then we should be men and women who know how to celebrate with a joy that has been freely given us in Christ. Verses 13 to 18 describe the Israelites celebrating an ancient festival called Sukkot. This was where they, they, they basically camped out. It, was, it sounds quite fun, right? Everyone went out of their houses, maybe up onto the roof or out into the garden, and they build these makeshift shelters. And what it was supposed to do was supposed to remind them of how when their ancestors came out of Egypt and they were making their way to the promised land, they were, nom- they were nomads. They were, they, they were camping out every single night. So, so it's like a, a way of them remembering what had happened you know, back in the day, their ancestors. And we learn in verse 17 that this celebration had not been observed like this for centuries, going right back to the days of Joshua. We also learn in verse 17 that there was tremendous joy among the people as they celebrated for seven days straight until the solemn assembly on the eighth day. So this teaches us, it teaches how powerful tangible rhythms are for us or any, or any community of faith that matter. See, God knows that going, going along with the intellectual understanding of the gospel and the emotional outpouring of joy in response to the gospel, we also need regular physical reminders of the gospel. And the holy festivals, like the festival of Sukkot, are kind of like the Old Testament versions of, of stuff that we get to celebrate in the New Testament. So let me give you three examples of that. So three examples of these kind of like lived out um, kind of embodied uh, rhythms that we get, to, um, we get to celebrate in would be baptism, Good Friday, and Easter. So that's just three examples among, among others. So in baptism, the believer goes down into the water. They're fully immersed in the water. And it signifies that they're dying to their old self. They're dying to their old life. And then when they rise up again out of the water, it signifies that they're now a new creation. And they're beginning a new life as a disciple of Jesus. Good Friday, which is coming up in a few weeks, I know that it's actually a highlight for a lot of you guys in the church calendar. This is an example of where it's appropriate for us to grieve. As we read from the Gospels about Jesus' betrayal, about his false trial, we read of his torture, and then we read of his gruesome death on the cross. If there was ever a day to weep over sin, then this would be the day to do so. But then comes Easter. 
Three days later, we joyfully celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. What does the resurrection do? Well, the resurrection confirms that he was indeed the Son of God. It confirms that his words were trustworthy. He said it to his disciples, look, I'm going to die and then I'm going to rise again. It confirms his words. And it also confirms that his death on the cross really did deal with our sin. If Jesus remained in the grave, then we could not point to the cross as doing what it was supposed to have done. The resurrection proves that the cross paid for our sin. So I'm, I'm really, um, I'm joyfully anticipating these special days that are coming up. We're actually going to have a baptism on Easter Sunday, which I'm, I cannot, uh, cannot uh, express uh, how excited I am about that. I think it's, if there's, if there was, if there's any like kind of visual um, way to celebrate Easter, it's by seeing someone get baptized. So super excited for that. Um, and yeah, just really excited about these ways that we get to retrace the gospel story together as a community, that we get to retrace the way that the gospel turns our weeping into joy. Why don't you pray with me? Thank you, God, that you give us your word so that you could be rightly understood. And I thank you that when we rightly understand you, it leads to um, comfort. Um, it leads to um, us realizing that although we fall so far short of you that we might, we might weep over our sin and rightly so that you've done something about it and you've done that because of your great love. Thank you that you loved us enough to send your one and only son so that we could be brought into uh, this incredible uh, life that we get to live now. Thank you so much for our individual lives with you where we're called to abide in you and produce fruit in you. But I thank you so much for the communal life that you call us into as well. Thank you so much for the Hallows Church. Thank you for this dear family of uh, brothers and sisters. And I pray, Lord, that as we continue to um, cultivate uh, a worshiping community uh, here, that you would, um, as, you, as you did in, back in Nehemiah, that you would do, you'd do so, much, um, so much great work in us, God, and that you would um, help us rightly understand uh, who you are, who we are, and that we'd be able to then rightly live out of it. Uh, men and women who know when it's appropriate to mourn, when it's appropriate to weep, and, but then when it's appropriate to celebrate and sing and, and, and dance. And I thank you so much, God, that uh, that is the, the overarching tone of the Christian life is one of celebration and joy. So I praise you for that, God. And I pray that you would uh, lead us through the rest of our time worshiping you now in your name. Amen.